thank you for being patient as we uh, try to deal with the technical difficulties of Zoom. Of course, it's not just technical difficulties. It's also um, the fact that we have temptations. And technology is just something very easy for uh, the macrobes to play with. The macrobes, of course, are the opposite of the microbes, beings that you can't see, but which have a big influence in your day-to-day -day reality. Um, and I, I would say the macrobes, uh, otherwise known as the demons, are much more powerful than the microbes. Um, and so when they, see, when they see Christians trying to do good thing, they, uh, they hate that. And so they cause difficulties to make us, to, to frustrate us, to stop, stop what we're doing, stop us from doing the good, and also uh, to cause us to sin. Um, so let's start by saying a short prayer. Um, o Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us and enlighten us to understand the teachings of your holy hierarch, Nectarius. Amen. So uh, today we're, we're reading the second chapter of the book on St. Nectarius, the, um, For Mind and Heart, St. Nectarius as Teacher. And he talks about motherhood and the raising of children. Uh, and as the translator notes in the footnote on page 15, much of this is from the almost verbatim from the previous essay. Um, uh, this was uh, an essay published in the journal Ieron Sindesmon in uh, 1895. So about a decade after the first a decade after St. Nectarius delivered his speech, actually less than a decade, about six years after St. Nectarius delivered his lecture to the girls' boarding school in Egypt. By, this, by 1895, he was a director of the Rizarios School, which was a seminary for priests. And he published in the journal the essay, which recycle some of the things he said in the speech. Um, and that's very common among the Holy Fathers and among many authors uh, to reuse sections of previous works. Uh, and of course, St. Nectarios makes it fit. In reading his writings, uh, I've been reading in parallel to this book, For Mind and Heart in English, I've been reading another book of his uh, that's called Periepimelias Psychis, which is in Greek. Maybe someday this will be translated too. Uh, and I'm struck by his style as a scholar, as a pastor, and as a writer. Um, Senectarios was a very gifted individual, aside from his holiness. Um, and he's a very gifted writer and also a very good scholar. Uh, he's very even-keeled. Uh, what do I mean by that? I mean he... He doesn't go off into rhetorical flourishes for the sake of rhetorical flourish. He's direct um, and he's to the point, right? And he's concise. He's also very logical. So he moves through his arguments logically uh, and concisely. And this is a virtue uh, as a scholar and as a writer. Not everyone, not all scholars, not all writers uh, can write like this. And I think that the English translation is very good at 
um, representing how Sinectarios writes his style and his ethos as a writer. Very scholarly, very careful in his wording. And the other thing that struck me is how he uses his words beyond style. His words, when he uses words, they mean something. You get a, a definite, um, de the, you get the, the, the feeling that there is a solid definition behind the word. He's not misusing his words. He's not abusing his words either. Right? He's using them correctly. And he's also, um, he knows that they refer to a reality. Right? And this is something that modernity, our, our cultural and intellectual condition today, this is something that, uh, a type of intellectual disease, I would say, that we have today, where we're not sure about our words. Um, in which we, we don't use our words correctly, um, and we don't think that the words actually, or most people don't even think about, um, and some philosophers deny, the connection between words and reality. That the words that we use actually correspond to real substances and essences. Real, they're concrete. And so St. Nectarios, he talks about the spiritual faculties, for example, and that's something real. Right, um, he talks about the beautiful and the good and the true, and those are realities. Right, Th those are perhaps the highest realities, certainly the most noble part of reality. Um, and so his words have meaning, um, as opposed to other authors that again abuse or misuse the words. By abuse, I mean they. They, do, they play tricks on us. By misusing, I mean they don't use them correctly, grammatically or, or according to their definition. So we're on page 15, motherhood and the raising of children. Um, and again, he's focusing on women and on mothers. Uh, I think there's a logical, well, the particular order of essays were, was selected by the translator and the editor right, uh, same person, uh, by Father John Palmer. Uh, and they're kind of in a logical succession. Um, because, and, and this logical succession is based on St. Nectarios' approach to education, that education starts with infancy, starts at infancy. Um, and the formation of a child uh, and, and the, has, has a huge impact on not only the child's future, but on the future of their children and on the future of an entire society. And it also is um, in line with St. Nicolaitis' teaching that the preparation for a child's in infancy is the upbringing of the child's parents and the education of the child's parents, and in particular, the mother. The mother is a point of focus here because um, motherhood is most directly connected with Infancy. Of course, a mother has an influence in the life of an individual, throughout the life of an individual, as long as she's alive, the mother. Uh, but, um, but the time when the mother has the most influence is in the first years, right? Um, and of course, it makes sense. The, the mother, uh, the, the female body is designed by God to correspond to the first years of human existence, right? From uh, the, 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 uh, from pre-birth 
to post-birth, right, in the first couple of years, everything corresponds to that. Um, so um, Saint, what St. Nicodius is saying resonates, in other words, with the scientific understanding of human nature and of female nature. Um, so he starts again with motherhood. Um, the process of raising children, I'm not going to go line by line, I'm just going to read some quotes here that we'll discuss. The process of raising children needs to begin while these are yet in their infancy so that the spiritual faculties and their very appearance are already being directed toward what is beautiful, good, and true, and away from what is vile, shameful, and false. There's a lot packed into that sentence. Uh, and, and this is his thesis that he's going to prove throughout the rest of the essay here. Uh, but I want to talk about spiritual faculties. Um, I've mentioned before that according to the saints, the fathers of the church, um, the soul has parts just like the body has parts of course the body has many more parts than the soul um, but the soul has parts and they're called faculties um, a faculty uh, basically means a power a capacity or capability um, and these parts traditionally uh, are three right uh, there is the, the reasoning faculty, which is the higher faculty of the soul. Uh, there is the desiring faculty. Uh, and then there is what's called the irascible faculty, or sometimes called the uh, uh, aggressive faculty. Um, the reasoning faculty, of course, is the faculty that gives us the power to think rationally and thus to follow um, relationships of cause and effect, understand analogies. Uh, of course, the higher part of that faculty, the Holy Father is also called the noose or the noetic faculty, and, and that allows us to understand truth immediately without uh, reasoning um, in the form of either intuition or faith, or uh, the Desert Fathers talk about noetic contemplation, which is the contemplation of God. Um, uh, the two lower faculties uh, have to do with desire and with emotions, right? So the desiring faculty is the, is the power of our soul that draws us towards what is beautiful, right? It's also the part of the soul that receives the grace of love, right? And then the other faculty is called the irascible faculty. The irascible faculty or the emotional or the aggressive faculty. That faculty is the, is the power of the capacity of soul that drives us towards what is good, right? And it receives the grace of hope. And the, the rational faculty or the reasoning faculty receives the grace of faith, right? Um, the ancient Greek, this is based on a model that was first described by Plato and that the fathers completely agreed with. Uh, Plato has the famous analogy of the chariot, where you have, he said, the soul is like a chariot with two horses. There's, there's the charioteer and the two horses. And the soul, when it functions properly, is like a chariot when it functions properly. The charioteer is driving the chariot, he's, and he's 
and he's leading the horses, right? He's, he's pulling the reins and he's in control. Um, and the soul, when it's not functioning uh, properly, is like a chariot that's out of control, where the charioteer is not controlling the horses and the horses are going their own way, right? And they're pulling the chariot in one direction or in the other direction, or they're fighting each other, right? That's the disordered soul. So in the, in, in the soul where there is order, which Plato also calls justice, you have reason guiding desire and the emotions. In the disordered soul, you have the other, the reverse relationship where you have desire and the emotions leading around the mind, right? Otherwise known as the passions leading around the mind. Um, and uh, that disordered state of the soul is exactly what causes us to sin. It's the inner cause of sin. And it leads us to destruction. As you can imagine, a chariot that's being led around by its horses and not by the charioteer is eventually going to be destroyed. It's going to fall off a cliff, right? Or it's never going to get to its destination um, and it's never going to fulfill its purpose. Whereas a chariot where the charioteer is in control, um, he is that, that chariot's going to fulfill its purpose, right? The horses are going to be reined in. You, you need them. You're not going to kill them off, right? There are some philosophers and later some monks in the desert who are, uh, who are heretics um, that said that, well, the purpose of asceticism is to uh, put to death the passable faculty, the lower faculties. Well, if that happens, the chariot's not going to get anywhere. You're never going to, and the soul is never going to uh, fulfill its purpose, right? The, the, the soul is created, the, the intellect, the reasoning faculty is created to guide the other two faculties to drive the chariot forward. And you need the power of those two faculties to keep moving. Um, so this is what Synecdotus means by the spiritual faculties. He's talking about the reasoning faculty, the desiring faculty, and the emotive or the irascible faculty. Um, and those three faculties are directly connected to what is beautiful and what is good and what is true. The reasoning faculty is created to know truth. The irascible or emotive faculty is created to do good. And the desiring faculty is created to drive the soul towards the contemplation of beauty. Right? Our ultimate desire is beauty. But it's the beauty of God, not just any beauty. Right? There's nothing we're more confused about than that. Uh, humans in general, in our society in particular, is very confused about what is beautiful and what is ugly. Um, uh, but St. Nectarios uh, teaches that from the beginning, the child's soul has to be formed in order to be drawn towards what is true, towards what is good, and towards what is beautiful. Um, the spiritual faculties from their beginning have to be exposed to the true, to the good, and to the beautiful. Right? Um, the entire upbringing of a child, uh, not merely the infancy, but the entire upbringing must be focused on those three things. Parents often say that they only desire the best for their children. 
but many parents, unfortunately too many parents, limit their conception of what is good for the child to food and clothing and a house. They dream about having a house so there's room. It's clean, right? The food is good. The clothing is clean. Everything's provided for. But not everything is provided for because there is, there are, there's a good that's obviously higher than the material goods. I think there's a question. Someone raise their hand. Sorry, that was an accident. Oh, okay. That's right. Um, so um, the, the upbringing of a child, it, it cannot be limited, obviously, to food and clothing and housing. Those are important. Those are necessary. But they are a means to an end, right? We can't neglect those things, right? They are, but they, because they are a means to an end. And what is that end? Why do we eat? Why do we sleep? Why do we live? Is the real question. Well, we live for the sake of what is beautiful, what is good, and what is true. Right? That's our end as a species, right? as a psychosomatic union. Um, and so the child has to be surrounded at all times, not if possible, but with every sacrifice, right? At all times, with what is beautiful, with what is good, and what is true. And the child must always be shielded from what is vile, shameful, and false. Every effort of the parents must be of a, of a, of a parent must be made to shield the child from what is vile and shameful, and false. And there's no middle ground in this, in this contest, right? Um, can we think of an intermediate category between <laughs> beautiful and ugly? We really can't. We can think of different grades of ugliness and different grades of beauty. One thing is more beautiful than another, yes. But between those two categories, there is no middle ground. There is an, uh, there's a vacuum. There's nothing in the middle, right? Um, can you think of middle ground between what is good and evil? There's really no middle ground between the good and the evil. Something is either good or it's evil. And of course, there are grades. There are, uh, uh, thing, there are things that are better, and the, the, there are the best things, right, Among the, in, you know, in the category of good, and the same thing with evil. But between the two, right in the middle, there's this vacuum. There's nothing there. Right? There's no intermediate category to say, well, I know, but this is neutral, and I'll let the child be exposed to this neutral thing. Um, that, you're, you're fooling yourself if you think that so there's something neutral like that. The same thing with the truth, right? There's no middle ground between truth and falsehood. There's no, like, in-between state. Because the moment you have... Falsehood mixed in, even if uh, four out of the five parts are true and the one is false, the whole thing is false, right? The whole claim, right? So we need to surround children with true truth, goodness, and beauty. Um, and in our age in particular, this is, this is the key battle of our age, right? This is one of the main battle lines. 
uh, for the preservation of our civilization, but especially for the salvation of our souls. Uh, because a parent can, parent will be judged for everything that they do or don't do for their children. There's no way to escape that judgment. There's no way to escape God's judgment at all. Um, but uh, this this battle line, this front line, let's say, in the battle for uh, spiritual survival, uh, one one of the main fronts runs right to the house. There's an ongoing effort uh, to corrupt children. Uh, And this is not a conspiracy theory. This is overt. It's an overt agenda. Uh, All you need to do is, and I don't suggest you do, but most of us have, watch what's on television or or see what's on uh, available online. Uh, or even look at the toys that are in the toy store. Um, look at the video games, so on and so forth. All those things, there is tremendous amount of vice that is uh, made uh, in order to influence and destroy and corrupt children. Right? Um, and, and we have to protect our children at all costs. At all costs. Basatisia. Um so, the soul of the child has to be directed towards what is beautiful, good, and true, and away from what is vile, shameful, and false. Um, he says, this age should be considered the surest foundation upon which a child's moral and intellectual, upon which to build a child's moral and intellectual foundation. From childhood, as from a starting line, man races forward Toward, sorry, the arena where he will spend his life. And then there's a quote from St. Basil, which is worth reading. While the mind is still easy to mold and as pliable as wax, taking the form of what is impressed upon it, it should be exercised from the very beginning in every good discipline. Then when reason enters in and habits of choice develop, they will take their course from the first elements learned at the beginning and form and, and from traditional forms of piety, with reason proposing that which is beneficial, and habit imparting facility and right action. Uh, this is from St. Basil's Long Rules. Um, St. Basil, is, we see here St. Nectarius' entire theory of education, where his source is. Right? It's St. Basil. St. Basil, of course, has read the philosophers of his own age, Aristotle in particular, uh, and he's deep in his influence, and he takes what is good from them. Um, as an aside, a side note, um, in this essay, especially in the following essay, we see St. Nectarios quoting from ancient Greek philosophers and at least one or two modern philosophers. And, and we might be tempted by that, but we have to keep in mind what St. Basil said, that we when we approach what the fathers call outer wisdom or secular wisdom, secular science, secular philosophy, we're like bees, just like the bees go around in the flowers and collect the beneficial substances from those bees. At the same time, or in the same way rather, we are like bees going around and collecting what is beneficial. 
And there's a lot that's beneficial in ancient Greek philosophy, particularly in the philosophy of Aristotle, uh, which many of the fathers studied thoroughly. And if you read St. John of Damascus and his um, uh, uh, font of knowledge, um, uh, his major theological textbook, he relies heavily on Aristotle there. Uh, but he's taking what is good from Aristotle, what is true from Aristotle, um, what anticipates Christianity and, and the full revelation of the truth, which came 300 years after Aristotle. Uh, but back to St. Basil, there's an entire theory here of early education, right? The mind is like a mold, and it's pliable. It's like, it's like warm beeswax. That's easy to mold, rather. So it's like warm bees, uh, beeswax that's easy to mold, and it takes the form of what is impressed upon it. So what happens, according to classical um, psychology, meaning Aristotelian psychology and the psychology of the Holy Fathers, uh, is that man interacts with the outer world through his five senses. Those five senses send back information to the imagination, which then remembers that. It kind of, it takes the shape of that information, right? And from imagination, we have memory, and then we have the, the reasoning faculty that then contemplates what the imagination has, has captured and what memory holds uh, and understands, the mind then understands the outer world, right? So the important thing is to under, here is, spiritually speaking, is to understand that the mind takes the form of whatever it contemplates, right? The, the imagination and the memory take the form, which is why we have to guard what goes into our senses, the inputs. We have to be very careful and cognizant and attentive to the inputs that we put into our soul because our soul then is shaped by those inputs, right? And this is how passions form through the senses. This is also how we can be sanctified through our senses, through the symbols of the liturgy, right, and icons. Uh, but in all the symbols, from the, from the sight to the sound to the, to the smell to the taste, aside from Holy Communion itself, everything else is a symbol that imprints itself on the soul. Similarly, vile and shameful things can imprint themselves on the soul, and that could create afterwards violent sinful passions um, and saint basil's um saint basil's little paragraph here addresses what happens right it, it, these these external inputs are impressed on the soul like it's wax um and it's then he says that when reason enters in when the soul develops its reasoning capability because we have reason only potentially when we're born. And the reason has to be trained and refined and it, and it kind of comes out. Uh, it manifests itself gradually in the first, in the old days, it would probably take the first 15 years, but today, I don't know, the first 35 years for people to become reasonable. Maybe they never become completely reasonable today. Um, but it gradually, reason gradually unfolds, right? And, but it has to be shaped and formed and trained and sharpened um, and through the interaction of reason with what, what's impressed on the soul we get habits right habit is second nature 
right? Uh, what is first nature is what is completely natural to us, right? We need to eat, we need to drink, we need to sleep. Those are all natural activities. But second nature, habit is second nature. It's something that we, we've learned to do. And by doing it so many times, it becomes part of us. We do it automatically, right? Um, we, don't have, we don't even have to think uh, to do it. And the best analogy is with sports, right? This is what athletes do all the time. They train and they train and they train and they try to make those skills habits, um, second nature, right? So that when the play comes, they don't even have to think about what they're doing. They do it automatically, right? There's a whole bunch of other things. We have habits every day. We have good habits. We have bad habits. And the worst habits are called passions, which are the causes of sin. Um, so obviously the stakes are high here. Uh, when we're talking about what's impressed on the soul and the habits that develop from those impressions. Um, but St. Basil says for children and for young people, he says when, when reason enters in and habits of choice develop, they will take their course from the first elements, um, learned at the beginning and from traditional forms of piety. Right? So if the child is exposed and if, um, if it's, this is a question, Um, St. Basil finding the good in Aristotle's works sparked a thought of had. Uh, as a younger member of this group still in public school, I believe that it, it, what is needful for us Christians is, of course, guard over what we let in, but also accept that we live in the world. Of course, it's extremely rare there can, be e there can even be a little good found in things like television, video games. The thing needful is discernment. Yes, discernment. Discernment is a grace. Discernment is something that's acquired through asceticism and through experience and asceticism. There can be good things um, that we can acquire from even modern culture, right? Um, an example of that might be the works of someone like C.S. Lewis or um, the works of a scholar like Richard Weaver, uh, or um, perhaps even some artwork that's aspiring to, to beauty. There are still people in the world that try to create beautiful art. And there, are, there still are philosophers um, and writers. Uh, of course, C.S. Lewis has passed away, but there are people that still write in his tradition um, that um, have, you know, that, that still try to create art that's beautiful. Um, and I would say there are even people, television producers, right? Uh, that, and, 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 and movie directors that still try that, have that as, a, as an end goal, like documentary producers, for example. But even some movies, movies have, the, have an immense power to move the soul, but it's a double-edged sword because it can go the other way as well. Most of the time it goes the other way. Most of the time television movies um, can go the other way in, two, in at least one of two ways. A, they either burn our time, they're time wasters, 
right? There's nothing profitable. Maybe nothing bad is in the television show, right? Maybe nothing bad was said. Um, nothing was suggested. I find it hard to believe, though, that nothing is suggested today. Uh, there's going to be some kind of suggestion. Um, if, if only in the uh, advertising right, that comes between the episodes. Um, but our time is precious. Our time was given to us. Each second, each moment that we have is a gift given to us by God for a particular reason. And that particular reason is for repentance. And every moment we don't spend repenting, that is, asking for forgiveness, preparing for the sacraments, or, and then preserving the grace of the sacraments. Every moment we spend that's unrelated to the acquisition of the virtues and the fulfillment, fulfillment of God's will is, is not only time wasted, but it is an affront, really. And we have to be very strict about this, an affront to God because he gave us a gift that we're squandering. Right, And so there is that problem with entertainment. The whole concept of entertainment is problematic, I think, from a spiritual point of view, a philosophical point of view, right? Um, to be entertained. What does, it, what does it mean exactly to be entertained? The ancient Greeks had theater, but in that theater they saw, they used that as a means to an end. And that end was the contemplation of some kind, some kind of truth. Right? For them, too, theater was a religious act because it was connected to um, the cult of Dionysus or some other uh, deity. Right? Aside from that, uh, if at least the theatrical works, the, the, the dramas, the, the tragedies of someone like Sophocles, right? there's, there's some kind of good that's being contemplated in that. This is Sophocles. There are other authors that are more problematic. Um, but, and so, but that's, is that entertainment? Aristotle says that the point of theater was catharsis. Catharsis. What does that mean? Catharsis. Well, it's a purification. It's a type of purification. It's not exactly what we mean by purification. And scholars have debated for a couple centuries now what exactly he meant by catharsis or purification. How, how is one purified? Um, but it points to the still it points to the fact that there was a higher goal. It wasn't entertainment. It wasn't just a laugh. Um, video games. Video games. Time burners. Big time time burners. Uh, not only time burners, though, but mind burners. Because, um, you know, whatever, whatever good might be in a video game, and I'm, I'm finding it hard to imagine what, could be conveyed in a video game that's a high, that points to a higher good. Um, video games do not correspond to our nature because we're not created to live in virtual worlds. Now, I understand the irony. I'm saying this on Zoom, right? But um, Zoom is a means to an end. It's a tool that's connecting us. So you are all, I know you all really exist, and it's not a real... It's not a virtual world that we're in. It's a real world that we're, we're just using this computer to interact uh, because of the distances. And thank God that we have this, right? But in terms of 
even in terms of movies, but also in terms of video games, that's a completely fabricated and artificial world. Our mind was not created to dwell in those worlds. Our mind was created to dwell in the reality that God created and to know that reality. Right? What did Adam do after he was created? He went around and he named all the animals and plants and all the species and things created. And by, the act, by that act, actually manifested his divine image. Right? In the way, because it's analogous to the way that God created those things, man gave them names. Right? But it also attests to the nature of the human mind, that it is, that's the main activity of the human mind, what it's supposed to do in the world. But then, of course, its, its trajectory um, is the contemplation of God, who is the creator, the cause of all those things. Um, whereas video games are a completely artificial reality, and so uh, th that's an activity below the nature of our mind. Um, and they waste our time in another way too. We could be doing very productive things with, with that time, right? From building something, um, right? Towards improving ourselves, studying, praying, right? Um, and so all of those, all of those things, all of those aspects are, and even the soul's capacity to engage in those aspects, in, the, in those in those ways of life atrophy with video games so we have to be very careful with video games um and at some point we need to be able to say you know i want what is not only good for me but i want something that's higher more noble than what i have right now we should always be struggling rather striving for what is noble growing in our nobility in our, in, in, is functioning according to the dignity of our nature. Um, so yes, technology, Zoom, for example, television, YouTube, movies, we can use those in correct in good ways. Most of the time, though, they're not used in the correct way. Video games, I have a hard, I don't know how to imagine a video game that actually does something. Um, uh, something, uh, you know, positive for us spiritually or intellectually. I have to tell you something else uh, uh, as, an in, as an instructor, as a university professor. You know, I have adult students. Most of my students are between the ages of 18 and 24. Um, and there's two things that destroy their minds. And I see it in front of me I, almost on a daily basis. Students that, the students that can and the students that can't do what I ask them to do. One thing that destroys their minds is drugs. I could tell. I don't have any drug addicts in my classes, or I haven't. Maybe I had one or two over the last ten years. Um, but I've had scores of people that have taken drugs uh, recreationally, um, marijuana in particular, um, which destroys their motivation. They have no motivation to do anything that I tell them to do, even though telling them to do good things um, in video games because video games just saps the energy out of their minds um, and they come unprepared to class and so on and so forth they don't again they're not motivated um, so and, and in general yes but uh, Vasily just put a good point made a good point the dopamine system 
right? They overactivate our dopamine system. And not, and okay, you know, all right, I'm harping on video games, but you know what else overloads our dopamine system? Social media. And both video games and social media are designed, the algorithms are designed to overload our dopamine system in order to keep us hooked. And that hooked part is important because whatever keeps us hooked, right? What's a synonym? How do, how do you paraphrase that? Whatever enslaves us is sinful, right? Whatever enslaves us, being hooked, being addicted through our dopamine system, right? Um, is, uh, it, it distorts the image of God in us. That's exactly the point actually that St. Nicholas is making in this book, in the first chapters. Uh, he talks about our moral freedom and and sin is in fact our our giving up of our moral freedom becoming slaves so uh, I'm going to continue here with Sinecladius if anyone has any more questions about this you could always email me um, so and so we have this you know the mind being a mold sorry being molded being uh you know, warm beeswax that's pliable. Um, when reason enters in, he says, and habits of choice develop, um, they will take their course from the first elements learned at the beginning, the things that the child was exposed to in their infancy, and from piety, right? in particular piety, uh, with reason proposing what is beneficial and habit imparting facility and right action, right? Our practical reasoning is about doing the good. Our, the Aristotelian term is phronesis. It's about our reasoning how to, about how to do the good, right? So this is what St. Basil is talking about, and habit imparting facility in right action, having the right habits that allow us to do what is good. Right? Those two things go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Um, Paragraph two, nature has appointed parents, especially mothers, to be teachers of this age. And these latter are therefore necessary to our lofty work as pedagogues to suitably educate and carefully form children. So this is the point of the whole essay. St. Nectarius is bringing this to the attention of other teachers. Right? Also his students at the Rizarios Seminary. Because they're, they were all, they they will all go on to be priests and bishops, and teachers. Priests and bishops are always teachers. Um, uh, but many of them would go on to become scholars. And of course, the journal was read by educated people in Greece. Many, most of whom were at the time, most of the literate people who had any type of education were actually engaged in education. Um, that was one of the professions available to. Uh, gifted people uh, in Greece, right? And so he's bringing this to their attention that they should take particular care for the, uh, the, uh, the education of mothers. But parents, I got a question earlier today about what about fathers? Synecdarios in these two essays is just talking about mothers. What about fathers? Do fathers have a role at all to play? Um, and I think that um, on the one hand, we can say that the purpose of these two essays uh, focuses on women. The first one, because it was a speech given at a girl's boarding school in Egypt. 
right? And so it's an appropriate topic for the audience and for the teachers at that boarding school because they were responsible for all these young women who would grow up to become mothers. And on the other hand, this essay that's published in the Hierosinglismus uh, periodical uh, is about bringing to the attention to educators the necessity and the urgency for women's education. So St. Nectarios is actually um, advocating for women's education, which was very rare in his time. Yes, at the boarding school, that was a school made up, you know, where the student body was entirely female, right? Um, but again, those were the daughters of rich men, right? They were the daughters of rich uh, merchants who lived in Alexandria and in Cairo. Um, Senectarios here is um, writing um, in Greece later, where the majority of the population, of course, was not were not rich merchants. They were peasants, that is, farmers who lived in villages and who farmed for survival, uh, not not profit, right? That for the most part, they didn't go and sell their harvest right on the market and take the cash like modern farmers do. Um, but they lived; they they survived from what they grew. So they're called subsistence farmers, right? Which has subsistence farming because the farming in general is labor intensive, and subsistence farming is very stressful because the stakes are high. One one bad move, one bad harvest, you're always a bad harvest away from, from starvation, right? Um, and so um, the children, of course, were, were uh, in the villages would work in the farms, right? And very few children from villages would ever be sent to schools. And most of those, the vast majority, if not 100% of them, at least from the villages, were all boys. And so here's an Italius is advocating for the education of girls because, because of all, everything that he said before, because of the fact that the preparation for the, you know, the formation of a child starts with the parents' formation. And girls must combine education and religion together. Um, but what about the fathers? I think we could say a second thing about that topic. The fathers, uh, St. Nectarios, of course, was an Orthodox bishop um, who accepted and, and espoused the teachings of the Orthodox Church about the relationship between husband and wife in a marriage, in a household, right? And uh, I think we could use Ephesians 5 as a source about what St. Nicodemus believes about fathers and the role of fathers. Ephesians 5, 22-33, is the uh, epistle reading in the wedding ceremony. And so, St. Paul says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Right? So, 
um, when we talk about what the church does and the church's activity uh, and uh, the church's role in our lives, we're not speaking about the church without Christ because Christ is the head of the church. Similarly, when St. Nectarius writes about what mothers do and the activities of the mothers and their role in the, in the lives of their children, he's not talking about them apart from their husbands because he assumes it's part of his worldview that the husband is the head of the wife. That in marriage, they became one. St. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Right? That's exactly what the church does for her children. Right? Um, similarly, the, the point is that what the head the activity of the body comes from the head. The activity of the mother comes from the father or is united with the father, certainly complements the father. Right? The head is a different function from the body, but they work together and they complement each other. And without the two in union, nothing really, I mean, in terms of the body, there's death, right? But in terms of communities and the family, there's spiritual death. Um, Right? And, and he says that, um, right, that, that um, the two became one flesh. For this cause, he says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be united unto his wife, and they shall be, and they two shall be one flesh. Right? So here we're talking about the entire um, household, the mother's particular activity in the household which is understood within the context of the entire Christian household, right? Um, the mothers serve as images and patterns in which their children become copies and continuation, which is said in the previous essay. That's also true of the husband. If it's true of the mother, it's true of the husband, but in different, of, of the father, in other words, but in different ways. Of course, the, the younger the child is, the, the greater role the mother has in the life of the child. Traditionally, that's how it was. The father was out in the fields in the, in the, in the, in the, or in the workshop, right? And the mother was with the child, with the one-year-old or the two-year-old or the three-year-old, right? Gradually, the child moves from being primarily with the mother to being with both and perhaps for boys being primarily with the father. Um, and, and, the, and the roles of the two um, complement each other. Vasily sent another, uh, in, in his question to me earlier today, he sent a very interesting article about uh, a, a study done um, looking at comparing the religiosity of the father with the religiosity of children. Um, and let me, let me just pull it up here. Um, it's in my messenger. Uh, it, and it's, it's an intuition, I think, that I had, but also that the, it's that the, the church has been saying this for a long time. The church has known this through divine revelation. Um, that the religiosity of the father predicts the, the, religio the faithfulness of the children, right? Um, for whatever reason, my messenger on my computer is not working, but maybe I can pull it up on my um, cell phone. So... Um, 
It says, according to data collected by Promise Keepers and Baptist Press, if a father does not go to church, even if his wife does, only one child in 50 will become a regular worshiper. If a father does go regularly, regardless of what the mother does, between two-thirds and three-quarters, 66 to 75% of their children will attend church as adults. If a father attends church irregularly, between half and two-thirds, 50% and 66% of their children will attend church with some regularity as adults. If a mother does not go to church, but a father does, a minimum of two-thirds of their children will end up attending church. In contrast, if, if, if a father does not go to church, but the mother does, on an average, two-thirds of their children will not attend church. Right? There is a 3.5% probability everyone else in the house. Sorry. Uh, if the child is the first person in the household to become a Christian, there is a 3.5% probability everyone else in the household will follow. If the mother is the first to become a Christian, there is a 17% probability everyone else will follow. When the father is the first, there is a 93% probability everyone else in the household will follow. Right? I mean, those numbers are incredible. It's, it's almost certain, in other words. If the father is religious, fulfills his obligations to God, that he will be this pattern that uh, Nictarius was talking about an image and a pattern for his children. And it's almost certain, 93% certain in, in, in some cases, at least 75% certain, um, that um, the children will follow in his footsteps, right? The main point, the main takeaway here is that the father and the mother must be cooperating and complementing each other. Right? They must have a complementary relationship where one doesn't replace the other, but does a, uh, but, but fulfills a special role that, that supports what the other does. Right? Um, and this is an important point, not just for those who have children and the raising of children, but it's also an important point for those who are looking for a spouse. What are the characteristics of a spouse that you want? Right? Well, if you watch the movies or you read magazines or you read cheap novels, they'll give you a whole list of characteristics that are neither here nor there. Right? The most benign. Oh, we're great friends. Obviously, uh, you, when you get married, you, you need to be friendly, right? Um, but that's not the criterion. Criterion is fatherhood, motherhood. This is why in the old days, there were matchmakers. Today, we're too good for that. But what was the role of the matchmaker? The role of the matchmaker was to be an objective observer and to make an objective recommendation. To make an objective recommendation. Also, to extend the network of people searching. So you didn't just have to find your spouse at a bar. In fact, this problem it was back then, and it is today the worst place to find your spouse at a bar or a party. But there are many people looking for someone who might be appropriate. But what was the criterion? The criterion was um, 
the criterion was the ability to be a good father or a good mother. Because think about it, most of these people, back in St. Nectario's day, were farmers. If the wife couldn't fulfill her obligations as a mother, the whole household would die. If the husband was a deadbeat and wouldn't go out to the farm and plow the farm or harvest the crops, everyone would die, right? Stakes were really high, biologically. Today, that part, you know, it's mostly true, uh, but what's even, the stakes are even higher. Um, am I volunteering to match you up? Yes, I can if you want me to. Um, although I'm in Detroit, I don't know. Um, I have to do a bit of traveling. Um, but back in the day, though, uh, people had to worry about dying physically. Today, we especially have to worry about dying spiritually. Um, dying spiritually. And so uh, this is the criterion, right, for finding a spouse. Will this person, will I be able to have a family with this person? And will this person be able to fulfill his or her responsibilities as a father or a mother? How good of a father will he be? How good of a mother will he be? She be, sorry. Um, and so that is, um, right, because again, you know, the, the formation of children, which is the parent's primary responsibility, uh, is, um, is something that uh, starts with the preparation of the parents. Uh, there's another, um, yes, Nictarius, if you could send that later, I think people will um, appreciate it. So um, it's 9.43 over here on the, the Eastern time zone. Um, I think I'm gonna stop here. Uh, most of the rest of the discussion here is uh, closely related to the previous essay. So I think next time we could just go to the third chapter, The Calling of Youth and Society, which is perhaps my favorite chapter of this book. Um, so are there any questions that anyone has or any points they want to make? And, and please, uh, the chat is sometimes hard to follow. I think it's better if you raise your hand and, and then turn on your mic uh, so that everyone can hear because um, uh, I think it's more efficient that way. Yes, I think uh, Nectarios. Yes. Right? Okay. Yes. Um, what I was trying to hint at before is, you know, we live in the world and there's a lot of evil and distractions and time wasters because what more does the devil want than for us to waste our time which would be used for repentance. Yes. And of course, still being a child and growing up, I've wasted a lot of time on things, but thanks to my highest parents and reading books like St. Theophon, which I started reading and St. Goddess's Life, I found that like in public school and even very rarely in video games and TV shows, there can be good, um, but of course there's always these evil distractors which waste our time. But the it's really important that as Christians, we find ways to, of course, guard ourselves, but also learn like what to let in and what to let out because not all of us can hide in the desert. You know, we're all living in the world. Right. And that's 
what's important for parents, especially the newer generation, is to teach your kids like what is good and what is bad, rather than only sheltering them from the bad, or are we sheltering them long enough because we're all yeah. going to get exposed to it one day or another. It's a good and point. It's a good point. Yeah, one of the later steps of the ladder is the discernment, and I know that's not exactly um, an easy thing because it's not. But it's good to try and aspire to that and try and learn how can we get through our life with all these distractions, but find the good in things because everything happens for our benefit, as the right. fathers say. Yeah, so uh, I, I like what you said about the, the it's not enough just to shelter the children. Sheltering them is, is just the negative part, right? It, it's, a, it's a negative. I mean, a negative in the sense that you're, you're – keeping them away from something but you're keeping them away from something in order to show them something else right we can't just shelter children from what is bad we have to do that but we also have to show them what is good we can't just shelter them from what is ugly we have to but we have to show them what is beautiful um and and what is true right so that as saint basil says Right, their soul is molded by the true, the good, and the beautiful, and that helps then develop habits of mind that lead them always back to the truth of the good and the, and the beautiful, and and helps them distinguish between the beautiful and the ugly, between the true and the false, between the good and the bad, right? Um, because obviously the parent isn't going to be there in order to always define what is good and evil. The child has to be trained to do that. But the training can't just be a deprivation of evil, if that's possible, because evil is already a deprivation of good. But it should be an immersion in good, right? It can't be just a a shielding from what is false, but an immersion in the truth, and and so on with the good. Um, In order for the child to have an immediate reaction, an intuitive, or they can think their way through it, right? Um, At the same time, the child has to be taught from an early age about the unseen warfare, right? That it's not, that we can't merely rely on our own habits and on our own reasoning. We have to use our reasoning and we have to have good habits, but we can't rely on them. We we have to call on God. That's the main message in the book, The Unseen Warfare, by St. Nicodemus and St. Theophan the Reclus, they, um, they, that we don't trust ourselves, um, but that we trust in God. But because we don't trust ourselves, we do two things. We trust in God, but we also avoid temptations, if we can, as much as we can. Right? You don't put yourself in a temptation to test yourself because you're really tempting yourself. And that is a sin. Um, any other questions? Yeah, but the thing is, yeah. if the mother is so important in the beginning, yeah, what do you what do you do when the mom has to work? You know, and then other people like not everybody has their like I don't have my parents around. You know, like who's going to raise the children? You know, it's a That's good point. Problem. It's a good point, and you know. Um, I think last time we talked, someone asked that question about 
women working full time and um, women working full time is a very difficult thing. Last time I said women working full time is difficult when they're especially when they're a mother because their entire body and their soul is oriented towards the child and you're ripping them away, right? And this is I think one of the causes for um, the postpartum depression. Um, of course, postpartum depression is a spiritual phenomenon and it has to do with the envy of the demons. But when the mother is unnaturally separated from the child, um, that that has that has spiritual and psychological um, consequences. Also, women are men just do men the men thing, right? But women have to do the woman thing and the man thing. They have to work full time in the, in our society, and they have to um, be mothers because who can who else can be a mother? Oh, a man cannot be a mother. Right. Um, I mean, there are exceptions and there are special circumstances, widowed men raising their children and so on and so forth. But but that I would say those are exceptions that prove the rule. Um, women entering the workforce has had the effect of and this is going to sound heretical in this day and age, but it's had the effect of reducing men's wages so that women have to go to the workforce because of household can't survive on one person's salary. Most women, that's why they work. Or at least a good proportion of women work because the household can't survive on one's salary. Right? Um, and, but if, they, if the husband can make a salary that actually could support his family, then I think a good proportion of women, maybe today, not all of them, but maybe 50% of them would actually go back home. And, and, and be and do what they what what what's natural to them uh, there are women that have callings scholarly callings callings as physicians callings as nuns um, and that is something that is, that uh, as teachers right that's something uh, we follow our calling um, but it's definitely a bad, uh, sorry, it's definitely a difficult thing. And for the ra raising of children, it could become a bad thing, right? Uh, and it, it also illustrates the importance of, of extended family, right? Uh, Orthodox, we don't believe in individualism, although the individual is important, right? We don't worship the individual. In the Orthodox Church, we don't believe in the uh, autonomy the absolute autonomy of the nuclear family, or the nuclear family is important and is autonomous. Right? It has to be the nuclear family uh, exists in a constellation of other nuclear families in a civilization, in a city, in a neighborhood, in a network of family, right? Um, so the modern world has actually made it more difficult. It's not easy. And there aren't, and everyone has to come up with a solution that works for them. But we have to have in mind the, the akrivia, right? There's always going to be economies. But even when the economies are made, the akrivia has to be kept in mind. The akrivia is the exactness, the, the absolute truth, right? That women, if, especially if they have children, it's good for them to be mothers and to be home. There's going to be some economies because we don't live in a perfect world, right? Uh, but the economy always has to be made with the exactness in mind.
Uh, and whoever can live out exactness is going to be, I, I think, in this in our society, I, I think they'll, they'll, they'll be martyrs. Um, women that stay home are reviled. Usually the women that stay home, people make fun of them. Why? They're doing exactly what they need to do. But they're not doing anything extra or anything more. Everyone else is doing something, anything extra, anything less, rather. Every, everyone else is either doing the extra things or the less. Right? Um, and again, this is another reason. This is a reason for men to pursue your profession to its end, as high as you can go, so that you can provide for your family, but also have the skills to provide for them in case, you know, uh, your, your profession is, you know, some kind of economic downturn or something. Um, you know, the, the, the problem, another problem, it's not just women going to work that's a problem, it's also men not being motivated. Right. This is another problem with the video games, right? Because in, in drugs, because it keeps men's motivation down. Uh, it keeps men down. It keeps them as boys. Right. Boyhood is over at 15 or 16. After that, things are serious. Right. And we have to be serious and we have to acquire the knowledge and the skills to support a family. Um, right. Because that's how our fathers were. That's how we want our sons to be, right? Forget what I want. It's the connection between my father and my son are going to be, that's, that's what I'm working on. Um, Maria, it's 9.55 on our end. Um, so I think maybe one more question and then we can uh, uh, end it for the night. I do want to remind everyone that beginning next week and the following week, we will not have this session, the book study session, only due to Barakisi happening at our parish churches. Um, so then we will resume again in September, first week of September. I think Melanie has a question. Okay, yeah. Hi. Uh, uh, I was... Uh, I, I'm having my own uh, problems, you know, with my uh, the father of my children, and uh, uh, now he showed up after after three years of not seeing them, not awesome. Oh. So uh, seeing them, you know, the the kids really missed him, you know, and they are very happy to see him. But he didn't change at all, and he doesn't want to support them financially. And I'm um, I don't know how do you. You know, like you just let them, you know, like uh, have fun. Is that a good example for the kids? Or just not being responsible, but showing, uh, I don't know, if you can be a good father if you don't provide for your kids. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, that, that is a, it's not an open question. I, I think we know every, everyone in there understands the answer to the question, but um, the correct answer to the question. Um, but I think we could also take the example of St. Anthusa, the, the mother of St. John Chrysostom, who was widowed. Um, and there's a special grace for widows, actually, especially young widows. There was a special position that the church held them in the ancient church. Um, because obviously it's a major sacrifice. And, and 
so she raised St. John without a father. But how did she do that? Naturally, that, that, that's a very difficult task, and it usually leads to bad outcomes. Statistically, it leads to bad outcomes, right? Um, entire cities in our society are populated by people that, you know, were, had absentee fathers or, or whose fathers um, had, you know, multiple divorces and stuff like that. Uh, and we have what's going on in our society today, riots and so on and so forth, and crime. Um, but that's people leaving, living to the, being left to their own devices and living in a way that is below their nature. But, you know, we, we believe, however, that if you live the Christian life, we acquire the grace of the Holy Spirit. First of all, we've acquired the grace of the Holy Spirit through our chrismation the sacrament of chrismation and secondly we acquire the grace of the holy spirit through the sacraments through the holy eucharist and we also acquire the grace of the holy spirit through our ascetic effort not as an automatic thing but as a gift from god right so the grace of the holy spirit is exactly it says in the prayers that they read over the clergy when they're ordained it says that the holy spirit fills what is lacking Right? It fills what is lacking. So that's the only way. That's how St. Anthusa did it. Right? By, by relying on uh, obviously using the gifts that God her natural gift, but also acquiring the grace of the Holy Spirit, which filled which was what was lacking. And she single-handedly raised a saint. One of the greatest saints of all time, St. John Chrysostom, right? Um, so again, there are always exceptions. But the exception, the mistake that we make as modern people is often we take the exceptions and we create rules from the exceptions. That We can't do that. The, the, that we can't create a rule from an exception. Um, it's a special circumstance, in other words. There's the rule and there's the special circumstance. Um, but again, the, the pattern of, of St. Anthusa is that the grace of the Holy Spirit fills what is lacking uh, in all things, in parenting, and even, the, even you know, where you have mother and a father, there's always something lacking. We are imperfect beings. Um, we always need the grace of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit goes where he's, and, and gives, bestows gifts on the basis of, of, um, worthiness but at the same time also it gives what is that what is necessary right it gives exactly what's necessary and what's needed okay thank you thank you you're welcome okay everyone thank you for uh, coming tonight so maria we will uh, next meeting is after the Feast of the Dormition, correct? Yes. So it's the, um, that would be the first Thursday in September, if I'm not mistaken. Is it the third? Yeah, it, it would be September 3rd, yes. Very good. Everyone have a, a blessed feast uh, or a fast first and then a feast. <laughs> uh, in Greece, we say Kalipanaya. Um, and 
and may, every, may God grant us the grace to uh, fulfill our calling in these two weeks, first two weeks of August, and also the grace and the patience to endure the temptations that always come when we fast. Thank you. Amen. You're welcome. Amen. Thank you, everyone. Have a good night. Have a good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.